Welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Cardozo and I'm president of the Pearson Center. I want to start by recognizing that this webinar is being hosted from Ottawa, the traditional and unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe peoples. Some of our panelists are in other territories, while our audience is joining us from across Turtle Island and perhaps beyond. As many of you will know, the Pearson Center is a progressive think tank that addresses the big economic and social challenges of the day. And in that context, I'm pleased to welcome you to the seventh webinar we are hosting on COVID-related issues. The other six webinars are available to you on our YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and type in Pearson Center and the others, the, and, and you'll be able to see the other videos. The others have addressed issues such as the economy, the public service, long-term care and tourism, all in the context of COVID-19. I want to take a moment to thank our two sustaining sponsors without whose help these sessions would not be possible. They are Canada's Building Trades Unions and the International Association of Firefighters. And I also want to thank various volunteers who have helped in constructing today's discussion. They are Karen Mock, Robert Yip, and Sharon Fernandez. So today's webinar is entitled Racism, COVID and Beyond. What is happening in Canada? What is happening elsewhere? And what should we be doing? We have an amazing panel on this very topical issue and I will keep their introductions very short because we wanna hear from them. We will begin with a discussion on defining systemic racism with Professor Wesley Critchlow, a leading expert on critical race theory from the Ontario Tech University, where he also chairs the President's Equity Task Force, the President's Equity Task Force, and he's also an Associate Dean. We have Charlene Stewart, President of SEIU Healthcare. The Services Employees International Union Healthcare represents over 60,000 workers in Ontario who work in hospitals, home care, nursing and retirement homes, and community centers. They are the frontline workers that we've been talking about so much in recent weeks. Rose LeMay is CEO of the Indigenous Reconciliation Group. Through training, coaching, and consulting, ISG supports organizations to implement the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, especially in relation to cultural competence and frontline delivery to Indigenous clients. And we'll hear more about how COVID is affecting Indigenous peoples on and off reserve. A.V. Go is director of a Chinese and Southeast Asian legal clinic. She is a lawyer herself and a founding steering committee member of Color of Poverty, Color of Change in Toronto. We will hear from her about the spike in anti-Asian anti racism at the start of the pandemic and since then. We're also fortunate to have two key legislators with us who are in the position to make the kinds of changes to government policies and laws that we will be discussing. Greg Fergus is Member of Parliament for Hull, Aylmer and Quebec. He's also Parliamentary Secretary to the President of the Treasury Board and to the Minister of Digital Government. I just want to remind you, Treasury Board is the employer for all federal employer, employees and in terms of digital government, they will be dealing with this new world of work, remote work and webinars. Senator Wanda Thomas-Bernard represents Nova Scotia in the Senate. 
He was formerly a social worker and a full professor at Dalhousie University, where her research focused on anti-oppression and diversity. She frequently addresses issues of racism in the Senate. With regards to the format, the panel discussion will last about 45 minutes, and then we will have time for Q&A with you, the audience. I will ask you to use the question box and send your questions in. Um, we will end promptly at 3.15 p.m. Eastern time. I just want to mention this session is being recorded and will be posted on the Pearson YouTube channel later this afternoon. I'm told that CPAC is also interested in airing the webinar in the near future. So let me start off, as I indicated, with a discussion about systemic racism. And Professor Critchlow, there's been much discussion about what systemic discrimination means. I'm going to ask you to start to, to share with us your definition. Uh, thank you, Andrew, and the Pearson Institute for this invitation. Um, to bonjour à tous. Bonjour, hello, everyone. Um, Honorable Bernard Thomas, Greg Fergus, Rosalie, Rosalie May, Charlene and A.V., nice to see you all and uh, to be on this panel with you. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say before even talking about racism is to talk about and to keep this question going is how do we begin to speak about and make sense of an epidemic of violence in light of everything that's going on, right? So I really want to keep the conversation in the context of an epidemic of violence. Um, racism is much easier to define than to explain to start with. And how does cope with racism when every day when racism doesn't stop is a, is a difficult question to also answer because the everyday experiences of racism disarticulates one humanity. So to define racism is both easy and difficult. Easy if one has the conviction that the experiences, the horrifying experience one exists, uh, understands at the same time the saliency of its daily ingredients to acknowledge the various forms it takes. And it's difficult if one expects and demands that all proposed definitions be so complete that it is a cookie cutter approach. In other words, racism as a concept and a term is always evolving and black and racialized people are always called upon to explain their experiences and put it to the pleasure and entertainment and consumption of white folks in ways that somehow says, this is who I am, this is what racism is. So one refutable fact about racism we must keep in mind is that there are vast differences exist, exist between the victim's perspective and the oppressor's experience. So racism can be defined very basic for my sociological class as a set of beliefs, policies, practices predicated on erroneous, unsubstantiated assumptions of any particular human group and creating this notion of a superior and an inferior group, ranked in terms of biology, et cetera, et cetera. Now, to understand systemic racism, I also believe we must contextualize or historicize Canada in the context of a colonial country and one that is built on a nation of slavery and colonization, which put into place policies and practices which may appear to be neutral on the surface, but have exclusionary impacts or negative impacts on groups deemed racialized, indigenous, or otherwise uh, marginalized. So systemic racism are barriers that, to me, and how I understand it is, barriers that operate through policies and practices that appear to be neutral, 
and uniformly applied to all, but it have negative impacts on historically disadvantaged groups. So when we talk about systemic racism, it's important to put it in the context of historicizing Canada's history. So we understand we're not talking about something that happened yesterday, but something that bequeaths us all deeply embedded in the everyday practices and norms of a society that reproduces what we call structural rooted deep racism. In that context, I think it's important to, uh, when the prime minister spoke yesterday, I thought he was quite eloquent in, in trying to describe uh, systemic racism for a politician. So he was quite on track. And I think it's, it's in that kind of framing, I think we need to, the history of de facto, where we, we had um, separation of school and, and uh, the low experience, et cetera. These are all systemic issues built into the normative operations of institutions. And uh, I will stop there for now because uh, I mean, I can lecture for hours on this. Parents evening, have but, your, they have it I, in their room. But I think I did it. Uh, I will stop there. It's in their room. You can't play with it. Questions. And to keep in mind that um, okay. I would like us to always remember that there's a history of, of uh, making this in the context and making sense of it in the context always of trying to understand the history of colonialism, slavery, and how policies and laws got reproduced and are made. Thank you. Okay, uh, Professor, let me just ask you, I mean, two things come to mind. When we talk about perhaps unintended consequences, I think of the height and weight restrictions ex that existed for police forces for a long time that didn't allow people of a lot of different backgrounds and women to meet those, those criteria. That was, one might say that was an in, unintended criteria and that people thought at some point that, that that police officers had to be big burly guys. So one might say that was unintended. But then I look at something like um, residential schools and I'm thinking there's nothing unintended about that. That was very deliberate, but state organized. And therefore yeah. that would be systemic racism too, wouldn't, wouldn't it be? Yes, yeah. Um, uh, I always like to remind people that no one colonizes innocently. So colonization is not an innocent project. And so when we talk about racism, we're not talking about an innocent project either. We're talking about projects that have already calculated the ability to benefit. So within racism, there's always going to be groups that advantage, benefit from it. And, and, uh, and those benefits have become over a period of time normative or the only frame of reference and therefore does not allow room for any deviation from that so whiteness becomes a norm, but any other prescription is not seen as a norm. And so when women challenge those policies, it is seen as a problem because why do you want to go there? We are not used to seeing you there. So any person that challenges the norm of any systemic historical policy is going to be met with resistance, but we have to keep lifting as we climb, as Angela Davis reminded us, so that we don't stop at where they told, tell us we belong. And, and there's no such thing as innocent uh, or un um, what I unconscious bias. You are, there's no <laughs> unconscious bias in my term. We we are socialized in a racist society. Therefore, you cannot have unconscious bias. What you have is okay. bias, and there's no unconsciousness there. Thanks. This is very helpful. I want to move on, but I, I just want to ask um, a couple of others. Senator Bernard, if you've got anything to add in terms of defining systemic racism, and Rose, I'll just ask you your, your thought too on on just that question. Uh, well, how can I add to Dr. Critchlow's uh, very eloquent um, statement around systemic 
racism. I, I think he's done very well. I don't have anything I'd want to yeah. add to that at this point. Thanks, Rose. I, I, one thing I, I do think about when I hear the word systemic racism is that it's built into systems and that a certain group has been highlighted as being less than another. And uh, I wanna thank you, Doctor, for your for the, the definition you shared with us. And Senator, thank you also for joining us in this panel. I'm really looking forward to listening to, you, listening to your words. In When the Indian Act was being defined and interpreted and thought through and discussed on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, Public Works Minister, if I remember correctly, was a minister, I'm pretty sure it was a Public Works, basically said, an Indian, the word of the day, which by the way, please don't use that now, I will get upset. Mm. An Indian uh, will never achieve the intellect of an adult, therefore we should treat them in our fiduciary duty. The Indian Act is a legislated piece of racism. And so when we talk about systemic racism, yeah. there's all sorts of levels in which it has impacted on different peoples. And in the end, we're at this day today where all people of color are trying to fight against it. The origins of those racisms uh, and systems may be more or less deeply embedded. The impact is still the same. Uh, so I just wanted to add that piece around legislation because it does, it still carries out. I see it in police forces. I see it in the way when, when Indigenous policy is being talked about in Indigenous issues. And it's always about the lack of capacity in Indigenous peoples. And do I, I wonder if that's kind of a colonial hangover back to the day when we were not considered to be as human, and that was the legislation. Yeah. Quite chilling, isn't it? Mm. Um, uh, Charlene uh, Stewart, I, I, I want to ask you, I want to um, come to you and talk, talk to you about the, the frontline workers. So as the pandemic became apparent, uh, frontline workers in long-term care, grocery stores, security, where, wherever they were, they're low-paid and part-time and largely racialized workers and new immigrants. Uh, tell us about your observations, uh, especially in regard to the, the workers that you, that you represent. Well, first I want to say thank you very much, Andrew, for inviting me. And... Uh, it's an honor to be with such great uh, co-panelists, and I too am looking forward to the conversation. And uh, it's a very interesting time. It's like suddenly in some people's mind, COVID met racism and it was always there. Uh, absolutely. The people that we have deemed over the last 90 days as being heroes and angels, uh, they are, as you said, uh, many of them are racialized uh, men and women in the service sector and in healthcare, it's predominantly women. So uh, racial issues and you know, anti-black racism has been going on, particularly in long-term care for decades. So I was dealing with it as well while the pandemic was going on, pointing out to uh, decision makers that this precarious work, especially in long-term care, is you know over 90% women. Uh, a lot of them are single women, and many of them are racialized women and new Canadians. So there was an issue there right from the start. And um, 
you take a look at uh, the pandemic being spread uh, because again, these are you know low income workers, which you will see in racialized communities many times. They had to have more than one job. So many of them have three jobs trying to seam together a living wage. And that again is a systemic problem that's been around for decades. Uh, the women that died in SEIU uh, also were three uh, racialized women. I believe they were all uh, black women as well. And you take a look at their underlying conditions, which is also an issue for racialized communities. Um, you know, housing is always a problem. Uh, healthcare and benefits are always a problem. So they, many of them had underlying conditions as well before they began uh, to fight to save the lives of the people that they were caring for in this pandemic. So uh, racism is very um, prominent in long-term care. I've had workers say to me that they have referred to the conditions in long-term care as being similar to plantations. So there's a lot of problems in the long-term care when it comes to racialized women. So it wasn't a surprise for us. And I started speaking on panels about it early, pointing that out. And a couple of weeks ago, before the George Floyd incident, a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. And I'm happy that there's more voices talking today. When we do our investigation into COVID, we have to absolutely look outside the homes and the communities as well, because uh, you will also see in the data that many of the uh, infections are in racialized communities and marginalized communities as well. So um, I say COVID met racism in the last few months. So there's lots of opportunities for us to correct two uh, longstanding systemic issues. <clears throat> And, and one of the issues that that uh, racialized women in these roles face, especially in long-term care, is that they are precarious workers. So they have they can only get part-time employment. So they end up having to have two or three part-time jobs, uh, which, when COVID came along, became a real security or health issue. Um, do you see that changing, where 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 homes are beginning to think that rather than have people working three hours here and three hours there and another person working three hours there and three hours here, maybe they could just switch them around and have them work a full day here and a full day there. Well, Andrew, that's what we're hoping for. And that's why we called for the public inquiry to take a look at some of those issues. That obviously has contributed largely to the problem and the spread of the pandemic is that these are, again, precarious workers they are the lowest paid in the healthcare system. So they depend a lot on public transportation. And again, when there's a pandemic, uh, those are carriers that they will, um, they're vulnerable to becoming infected through, you know, uh, just trying to get to work. So I'm hoping that absolutely we will take a look at that, that, the, that we will pay these, uh, again, predominantly women and racialized women uh, a decent living wage with retirement security and benefits. I mean, they, I, I considered and, and compared them to, you know, male dominated sectors like, you know, firefighters and paramedics, that they are just as valuable, but yet they are so low uh, down the, well, wage grid benefits, but also the respect and dignity that they don't get. And again, it's the employer's responsibility to provide a safe workplace. And that is obviously we can get into, you know, infection control and, and other issues, but as well, there is the uh, racist and the discrimination. I mean, I appreciate and we all do that it's a unique community that these workers are taking care of, 
But some of the stories that these women tell me that, um, you know, that some of the residents say and even some of their uh, white co-workers say to them, I mean, it's horrible. And it's the employer's responsibility to ensure that that does not happen. So, again, um, yeah. I am strongly hopeful that we will see the change. And my hope comes from uh, panels like this, conversations like this, and that there has been, you know, real eyes open from the public uh, during the last three months at the problems in long-term care. So I'm hopeful. Uh, unless we all stick, stay together and we have inquiries, uh, I'm fearful that we won't see the changes that we need. So it takes a village. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, can, I, I, can, I, I, can I jump in there? Yeah, go ahead. Is, is that possible? Thank you. Yeah, please go Thank ahead. You. I want to build on that and to say, in addition to what we're seeing in the long-term care homes, we're also seeing the over-representation of racialized people uh, women and men in other sectors as well. So cleaners, uh, transit drivers, um, those who work in the, the whole uh, waste management uh, industry, those who work in stores, you know, those are part-time precarious jobs overrepresented by racialized people, overrepresented by women, overrepresented also by the, you know, the, the few people with disabilities who are able to find work. Many of them are working in, in such precarious jobs. And the migrant workers, let's remember them as well. And we're already seeing some changes. So I've been using the, the, the phrase, the pandemic of COVID has collided with the pandemic of racism. And we yes. do need to address it. Yeah, and and one of the other, uh, I've done this little unscientific survey of looking at uh, trying to assess the 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 background of people in the delivery industry. So the the, the food delivery industry mm -hmm. has gone up considerably, yes. Yes. and I've got to say that I've like found people about one in ten food deliverers are white. Uh, the others are all people of color, and of the white folks who are doing it, they're young men whereas the others are people of all ages. So these are family people, people who got family, lots of responsibilities, and they're doing these jobs, which obviously don't pay too much. Um, but interestingly, it's a new industry that's, that's emerging right now, but has some very definite um, uh, racial aspects to it. Um, Rose LeMay, I'd like to ask you to share with us a bit about the conditions of indigenous peoples on and off reserve with regards to COVID. Thank you. It, it's a bit of an interesting situation that I don't think any of us would have thought through. Uh, obviously, Inuit in the far north and the far uh, Inuit communities are more isolated, and it appears that COVID has not made it into many of the communities. There is a couple of communities in northern Quebec. Uh, First Nations on Reserve, also quite isolated. Uh, most Canadians don't cross over that theoretical line onto reserve. Uh, and there's not nearly as many as cases that one might expect given the lack of healthcare access. Metis, we don't know at all. Uh, so according to Indigenous Services Canada, as of yesterday, there was about 240 cases who were Indigenous in Canada. Should we make any analysis or policy on that number? Not at all. That number is simply the cases that communities have shared with the federal government. Who knows who is falling between the cracks? Mm -hmm. so this gets into the much wider debate around uh, what self-identification criteria exists in provinces and territories and hospitals so that First Nations, Inuit, Métis, when they need services, if they choose to self-identify, are we keeping track of that? Not really. 
most provinces and territories, uh, there may be indicators. Those indicators don't work well with each other. We can't easily roll up data. Hospitals generally don't ask. On the other hand, some Indigenous peoples may not want to self-identify for the fear of mm -hmm. racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know of Indigenous peoples who, uh, I know a First Nations woman who doesn't look stereotypically Indigenous. I look stereotypically Indigenous. I can't hide it. When I go into hospital, I expect racism, I have to say. If I were to go into um, a long-term care home, I think I'd have similar worries, although I haven't really thought too much about it. I'm still young. My friend who is not doesn't look stereotypically First Nations can see a difference with the moment she says, I am First Nations. Up until that point, staff may assume that she's not. And she can see that switch, that instantaneous switch. Now, I appreciate uh, the professor's discussion around unconscious, I really want to talk to you more about that, unconscious bias, conscious bias. Whatever it is, it's impacting on the outcomes of Indigenous peoples. Will First Nations, Inuit and Métis have a higher rate of uh, COVID cases than other populations? I don't think anybody is going to be willing to make a guess on that. Uh, it seems lower than we feared. Uh, and I, I don't know what the future will bear. Um, I, to what extent are you concerned about um, uh, medical services available on remote reserves? Uh, I know that concerns concerns are are very high. If we were to consider a First Nation community in Northern Ontario, if if COVID were to get into this community, what would it take in order to get healthcare services? A plane would have to be chartered, which means we'd have to find a plane and an airline uh, to find the staff. Uh, and thankfully some First Nations own some airlines, that's great. Some Inuit own some airlines, that's great. But there aren't any services in many of these communities. What we take for granted in cities, from the hospitals to the COVID testing, to, to face masks, sanitizers, gloves, there, there's probably majority of communities that have none of those things. Right, right. So they're actually raising money right now. The First Nations Health Managers Association is actually out there begging for money to buy face masks, gloves, and sanitizers to ship into First Nations communities because it doesn't appear that the federal government has filled that gap. So what happens if COVID gets into a community? It's, it's gonna, it's gonna be a disaster. It's going to be on the disaster on potentially as bad as smallpox. So there, there's a lot of catching up very fast that Indigenous Services Canada should be doing at this point. I'm not entirely sure what is what is happening in terms of that distribution system. I haven't talked to anybody in Indigenous Services Canada about that, so I really wouldn't want to say. I have talked to people in community who are, are waiting for some support. I don't think it's too much to ask at this point that in these communities who are such at high risk, that every single health authority, every single province and territory should be checking in with the communities, indigenous communities in their regions and saying, are you okay? How can we help? What do you need? Okay, thank you. Um, Amy Go, let me ask you about the, the spike in anti-Asian racism that we saw at the start of of, um, of this uh, pandemic and, and which is carrying on since then? 
Sure, and um, if we have time later, I would also like to add to the uh, discussion about precarious work and racialized groups, but I'll yeah. you know, sort of talk about the anti-Asian racism first. Um, but I think what uh, what I want to start off by saying is that this is not nothing new. The anti-Asian, uh, particularly anti-Chinese racism associated with fear of disease <laughs> has a very long history in Canada from, you know, yellow peril to the Chinese attacks to SARS in uh, uh, 2003. You know, anti-Chinese racism has, has always been entrenched in the Canadian psyche, particularly around the disease kind of idea. Um, even back in 1885, like uh, the report of the Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration described Chinatowns at that time as filthy hotbeds of disease and, and vice. So it's not at all surprise, uh, surprising that even before COVID-19 has its name, even before a World Health Organization called it a pandemic, when Canada only had a handful of cases back in January, the flaming and othering of Chinese Canadians had already started. And since then, we have heard like, you know, hundreds of reports of Asian Canadians uh, or people who look Asian, uh, including a, a number of indigenous folks around the country were being attacked, um, you know, stabbing, punching, serious assault was happening in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, and beyond. Uh, the victim is as old as 92 year old or as young mm -hmm. as 15, and the majority are women. So um, it's a it's a very troubling uh, sign. But again, you know, let us remember it is not something that happened only uh, because of COVID. Uh, COVID, certain, you know, as all the other speakers have said, uh, COVID. Uh, exacerbates pre-existing uh, inequities, right? Um, but it did not create uh, racial racism and it did not create uh, racial inequality. It just kind of gives that uh, pre-existing racism a chance to uh, really, go, you know, sort of uh, become very open and very overt. So, um, so, and let's not rem uh, forget um, sort of comment by David, uh, sorry, Derek Sloan, which is a conservative oh, party candidate, okay. right? Mm -hmm. uh, about uh, the loyalty of uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, asking whether she is working for China or Canada. Again, this idea of Chinese Canadians being foreigners, again, is nothing new. It started with our first prime minister uh, when he introduced the legislation to disenfranchise Chinese. We are always seen as foreigners or you know, the racist rant by uh, Brian Adams. And I can't repeat them because uh, uh, Senator Bernard Kitts might overhear it, so I'm not gonna repeat them. <laughs> so um, so what you. I'm thinking, like it's like, um, we, I know that uh, our prime minister has denounced uh, anti-Asian -racism, anti racism as he has done with anti-Black racism, but I haven't seen any concrete action yet. Um, and, you know, in fact, uh, the whole idea of anti-Asian racism is not even named in the current anti-racism uh, strategy at the federal level. So we actually, earlier this week, we, uh, we filed a report to the UN, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Racism is actually looking at racism during a COVID-19 pandemic. So we put a report together with, uh, uh, joined me with the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice uh, to talk about the experience of our communities. But certainly, all of the all of the things that we're talking about today 
should be put to, uh, before the UN um, because it's not just about those incidents of attacks, but it's about the whole uh, structural systemic racism in our labor market, in the care, and even in the benefits programs that are now designed uh, to address COVID-19 and how that is also not reaching a lot of the racialized communities. And that <laughs> I think needs a, a, a whole lot of separate discussion as well. Uh, th thank you, Amy. You had uh, so Avi, you had a, a comment about uh, frontline workers as well. Right. Yeah. So I just want to say that uh, because we deal with a lot of people who are in precarious work, and some of them uh, are actually have precarious immigration status. Um, so a lot of them actually, um, you know. So if you are in precarious work, a lot of the employers pay you by cash. Um, they, you know, they they don't want the government to know that they have an employee so that they can exploit them as much as they uh, possible. They don't pay them minimum wage. So a lot of these people are the first to lose their job when the pandemic started. But then they are having a hard time applying for a SERP and the other benefits because, because they can't even prove that they had $5,000 uh, minimum income in 2019. Uh, we've been telling them to apply anyways. But now we're like, okay, are they going to be hit by the audit? Are they going to be told that you are cheating the system? You'll be penalized, you go to jail. Like those are the very real issues that many of these people with precarious work and especially those with precarious immigration status are facing. Many of them do not qualify for SERP. They also do not qualify for Ontario, uh, you know, the, the provincial uh, social assistance. A lot of them are just stuck here with nowhere to go, and they don't even want to go to the hospital because they're afraid of being found out that they have no status. So, and they are, you know, I think 99% of them are racialized, right? So, um, you know, I don't even know where that we begin to kind of deal with those issues. And I, I see some movement with the government. They have introduced some pilot program to address some of the agricultural workers, but it's only for a very hand, small handful of people. Um, but anyway, so I just won't, I know that there are other issues that we need to discuss with, yeah. so I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much, Avi. Um, I, I just want, uh, want to ask uh, uh, Greg Fergus and uh, Wesley Krischler if you've got any uh, quick comments on the issue of frontline workers before we move on to the next uh, topic. Well, I think Dr. Critchlow had uh, had very much you know, set the tone in terms of systemic discrimination, systemic racism that exists. And Dr. Uh, I, I like the way how Dr. Bernard, Senator Bernard, had also uh, or Senator Dr. Bernard um, <laughs> uh, had indicated that you know this is uh, how COVID has exposed racism. I mean, racism has existed. Uh, since uh, time immemorial, and uh, you know, since we, since uh, the first Europeans uh, uh, came to this land, um, and we are seeing the systemic discrimination that exists, and we're seeing it being confronted, uh, being exposed by COVID. Um, if you're talking about precarious workers, you're talking about, uh, the, you know, we we all of a sudden discovered the importance of these precarious mm -hmm. workers as being the mm -hmm. glue that actually keeps our society functioning mm -hmm. from our bus drivers to our uh, to, to our, our shelf stalkers uh, to our personal care workers uh, to you know the, the folks who, who cleaning staff garbage uh, uh, people pick up who pick up our garbage stuff all of this uh, are, are precarious jobs and of course they fall to the uh, to the 
folks who are the most precarious in our society, and that tends to be uh, racialized communities or indigenous uh, peoples. Uh, so now that we've exposed this, the question is, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. How do we uh, how do we make this better? Because um, I'm not interested, and I'm certain none of the panelists are interested, uh, to going back to the, the system as it existed. Um, we need to really rethink uh, everything uh, on how we organize ourselves, how we value uh, certain work, how we value the other, um, and why are some? I mean, even if even if you look at the 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 folks uh, who are working as personal care workers who are mostly racialized, mostly women, as, as uh, Charlene had pointed out, then the question is, when you take a look at the management of those, uh, of, of those, of that industry, it's, it's not those workers who are, or the, the, the racialized communities that they represent that are there. Um, so how do we rethink all of this? How do we make sure that we take the steps now that when we go into um, uh, getting out of uh, this pandemic, how do we how do we make things better? So, do you think, in in terms of rethinking these things as a society, and one of the issues is paying frontline workers more? Does that mean that all of us have to think about paying more ourselves instead of always wanting the cheapest thing everywhere we go? Are we willing to pay an extra quarter for that coffee? Are we, are we willing to pay an extra 100 or 200 for our senior relative in long-term care? Or does well, the government pay for that? What, what are your thoughts about it? I mean, do we have to have that kind of discussion where we get people to think about, we've all got to pay more to the people who are earning so little, but yet a pay, uh, as we've seen, the most important jobs over the past few weeks? Sure. Uh, so I guess my answer would be, I am pretty confident that paying the people the minimum amount of money to do this necessary work is not what's going to bust the bank uh, if we paid them perhaps a little bit more, something a little bit more decent. Um, we seem to have found uh, in provincial and territorial and, and federal governments uh, a way to to pay a sort of a pandemic uh, prime, on dit en anglais, mais, uh, how do you say that in French? Uh, we, a bonus, a pandemic oh. bonus, uh, yeah. so that these people could actually stay in the jobs that we discovered are essential uh, for for uh, society to function. Uh, I, I think you know maybe we uh, maybe you know some people are at the at the higher end might have to just take a little bit of a haircut uh, so that everybody can 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 you know have something decent to work with. Hello, this is Andrew Cardozo of the Pearson Center. The Center is a progressive think tank that facilitates thoughtful debate and dialogue while encouraging action on the issues that matter to Canadians. The Pearson Podcast is our latest venture in our efforts to lead the Canadian conversation surrounding COVID and beyond. However, we cannot do this without your support. There has never been a more important time for thinking big about Canada's future, nor a greater need for your support. To make a financial contribution to support projects like the Pearson Podcast, please visit thepearsoncenter.ca forward slash contribute. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Um, Wesley Crenshaw, I, I, I want to move the discussion a little bit into, into the, the world pandemic that we're seeing, as a, which, which I think um, became more evident, more of a worldwide debate uh, in large part because of the tragedy uh, that was faced by George Floyd. 
um, the whole world and certainly Canada is much more aware and Canadians are much more aware of racism. Uh, Wesley Critchlow and then Senator, uh, what are your thoughts about what we can be doing now? Um, I think as we talk about the issues around racial justice, we have to be talking medical justice at the same time because we can't be talking one form of justice without the other. There has to be intersections. Um, medical justice, education justice, all these different forms. And we have to change the language we're using. Um, and so that when we address the question, for example, this big movement right now that is taking up um, time is around the question of police defunding. And I think language is so important because people don't want to defund police. People want to redirect the resources to communities that can do a better job and let police do what they can do best. But that has not really been taken up in a, in a sensible way yet because the, the, the way the media has put a spin on it is that people want to get rid of police. So I think what we really need to do is find ways to control the message and the medium. Just remember, hunger has no principles. So we can't expect the working poor to be in front of the, of the, of the struggles. And we here sitting talking about this stuff and, and who have made a, a career out of this know exactly what the social inequalities are. And, and governments have to be willing to take the, have the political will and commitment to make the necessary changes and, and, and recognize that this is for the better and lifting of everyone. And that will require us not talking about minimum wages, but living wages. That will require us not talking about affordable housing, but housing. Um, I mean, the language right now is already filled with deficit theory, and a deficit theory only reproduces the paralysis of a society and pathologizes those who are impacted. And, and we know that it's not about minimum wage. We know it's living wages. And so why aren't we saying to, 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 um, to, the, to the, the corporations and individuals who have benefited from illegal immigrant labor, as um, A.V. talked about, Single farm workers are coming in here right now as we speak and have been paying in, uh, unemployment insurance and not entitled to it, and they have no benefits. And from my understanding, seasonal farm workers have paid billions of dollars into EI and can't make a claim. Mm -hmm. You take that kind of money now and turn it into retributive justice. And retributive justice gets at the core of some of what we've been talking around, a reparation for slavery, reparation for indigenous people, reparation for... Uh, Chinese. And so reparation has to be centered on the discussion in a meaningful way, not in a politicized performative way of, of, of pontificating and flaccid reassurances, but one now that is filled with uh, solid guarantees of what it means to move and shift and recognize that capitalism can't function without this working class. And for this working class to be human, we need to start humanizing those conditions. Thank you, uh, Senator Bernard. Just Your a couple. About, yeah, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Um, Your I'm thoughts sorry. about this moment and what we, we should be doing? Well, first of all, I hope it's more than a moment. When I see people around the world risking their lives in protest about the Black Lives Matter movement, they're risking their lives because they're going out in large numbers during a pandemic. And the rage that people feel 
is not a rage just about what's happened to Mr. Floyd, but it's the accumulative impact of so many years of injustice and people feel so angry that they're speaking through the protest. So it has to be more than a moment and it has to lead to real change. We're talking about a major paradigm shift. So whether that is about you know, shifting to a guaranteed livable income for everyone, or whether that's really you know, focusing on economic justice and social justice and legal justice and education, educational justice for all of us, whether it's, it's creating space in this country to talk about things that really matter and to not have people shy away from it. I think those are some of the, the so those are some of the changes that need to happen, and I believe that we owe it. We owe it to every person that's taking a stand, that's that's protesting, that's saying you need to hear this because it's important. When I think about the so go back to the beginning of this this panel discussion, Dr. Critchlow very nicely laid out systemic racism. And then I think what people tend to forget in that big picture is the everydayness of racism, the violence of racism, and the impact of racism on health and well-being. And the fact that people have absolute rage shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. In fact, we should be surprised that it didn't happen before now. We should, be, we should be surprised that that rage isn't erupting in Canada. So, well, so real change needs to happen. Yeah, well, well thank you for that. And, and let me ask um, both Greg Fergus and, and, and back to you, Senator, uh, on the issue of when I referred to it as a moment, how do you feel as politicians, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, as legislators, how do you make sure this isn't a moment? How do you keep the issues alive and get some real action? And what do you need from communities and from people? What do we need to, to guard against? And I say this in part because we live in an information society and you know we've been through many situations where something seems really big one day and three days later we're on to something else and the whole media moves on to something else. How do you keep this issue alive until you get some real change? <laughs> And I'll ask Greg Ferguson to go first, and, and Senator, please add. And, and I, I wonder if you could share with us your experience, because you, the crucible you work in is one where there is this demand for so many issues to be dealt with. As legislators, you've got to deal with a whole lot of things. How do you maintain the focus on these issues in, in the political system? Well, I, I think actually we're working on that. Um, Senator uh, Bernard and I are members of the Parliamentary Black Caucus, and we've been uh, meeting and discussing and drafting uh, some ways to making sure that we keep this uh, issue alive. And, and I'm just going to get to that in just a second. Um, we're also making sure that we're uh, allying ourselves with other caucuses, such as uh, the Indigenous Caucus, because uh, this is everyone's battle. This is, this is when it's systemic, uh, you know, you can't fight for one without fighting for all. Um, so we, we certainly understand the importance of, of alliances and, and bringing this issue forward. One of the ways which we're doing this, 
uh, to answer your question directly, is uh, by making sure that we take, we disaggregate data. In, in our country, we're going to have to start taking a look at, it, it, it's, it's not enough just to, you know, measure uh, uh, you know, make whatever factors that you want to take a look at. You have to start taking a look at more precise numbers. Um, and I, I don't know if it was that view for was Rose or for Charlene who had mentioned, um, you know, the importance of working with provinces uh, so that when they start collecting the information as who's being affected, uh, who is being infected by this uh, disease, um, that we just ask another question: How do you identify? And you know, make sure that we have a statistically valid way of of, of, of collecting that information. This is what we need to do because there are different effects in the jurisdictions where they do uh, um, capture this information, we're seeing some really disproportionate results as to who's being affected. So by collecting uh, more uh, disaggregated data, we'll be able to find out what are the effects of our social and economic and whatever policies that we come forward uh, so that we can keep that that's a gift that we'll keep on giving because you can't change what you can't measure so let's start measuring it so we can see what the effects are so that we can change things in the future and, and, and just quickly on, on keeping the the flame alive if i can use that term and over a longer period it, so data is, a, is one of the major points you're saying that is a that is a huge point because then that can point. I mean, I'm working under the assumption that once you get that those numbers, you're going to do something when you're faced with the reality that there are disproportionate effects. I'm assuming goodwill on 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 all the on all the different parties that are involved. I don't mean political parties. I mean you know government and experts and the like. Um, that will be the one that will allow us to start saying, you know what, this policy that we've developed. It, you know, it works great for most people here, but it's just not working for Indigenous peoples. We got to figure this out. Let's let's sit down uh, with the community. Let's figure out how do we try to achieve this goal. Is this goal uh, one that we do want to achieve uh, in the Indigenous uh, communities? Same thing with with uh, Black Canadians. Same thing with Asian Canadians. Same thing with 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 whomever. We you know with with women, with men. We want to just make sure that we 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 capture and. We want policy to be effective. Well, to be effective, we got to really measure it in all its complexity. Yeah, Senator, uh, how, how do you keep this issue alive in the cut and thrust of the Senate? Well, it's a bit challenging during the during the times that we're in, of course, because the focus is very much on COVID. But part of part of the work is really bringing that racial justice lens into all of our discussions about COVID. And so as, as opposed to looking at this as a separate single issue, it's really integrated in all that we do. And so that's one of the ways that, um, that we can uh, be taking actions every single day, really. Okay, and I'll ask Charlene Stewart and, and Rose LeMay to comment as well as to how, how you keep this issue alive to the point where we actually get some, some change. Well, uh, when the doctor talked about the victim and the oppressor, it takes those two now to stand up together. And that's what we're seeing across the world is you are seeing it, you know, all kinds of race, you're seeing gender, you're seeing white people. And as a privileged white woman, it's me that has to make the difference this time. I mean, uh, the racialized group have been arguing and fighting and, and given us the data and they've lived it for hundreds of years. 
That's the excitement I see right now that I, for one, am not going to go away on this, is that people that look like me now have to be at the front of the lines. We have to be the one uh, with the loud voices, and we have to be the ones demanding action. I mean, to talk about it, people have been talking about these for hundreds of years. It's time now, and that's what I'm feeling, that maybe we're there, that the oppressor and the victim will lock arms together, and we will demand change as a society, not as, well, as a celebration of multi-race, trying to deal with an issue that is long overdue to be dealt with. So we need to demand the change. We need to see the change. I mean, people, you hear it. The racialized uh, community, marginalized community, they're tired of this. It's been years and years, decades, hundreds of years that they've been saying this. Now it's time that we continue to see what we're seeing out on the streets. It's the young people like we've never seen them before. They're, they're the hope of the future. And it is the white community. We have to step up and we have to be loud and not go away over this. So that's the differences I see coming forward. Yeah, one of the things I noticed, I was at the demonstration in Ottawa last week, and I was quite impressed of the of the eight or 10,000 people there. Um, I'd say 90% of them were young, and about 80% or more were white. That's quite unusual for a demonstration that's dealing with racism. So, And, and my sense is that was the same uh, situation across the country. I, I, would, I would hope that means... A, there's a change happening in society, and also that the lawmakers are seeing that 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 the larger community cares about this. Uh, Rose, let me. I just want to come to you as well as, as to how how we keep this issue alive to the extent that we get some some change happening. It's a really good question. I've been thinking about that and talking about some others. Uh, an American author, David Burr Gerard, wrote. I love Twitter. I sh should be upfront about this. Just wrote a tw tweet. It said history professors in, uh, in the future will not specialize in 2020. They might specialize in a quarter or a month of 2020. So much is happening. Yeah. I'm very worried that we won't learn a thing. And why mm -hmm. would I say that? Because in January, we were protesting around the lack of inclusion and voice for Indigenous peoples around pipelines. Mm -hmm. That was January. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any movement or change since then, and now we're thrown into another crisis, and I'm not sure what it's going to take. Although, um, Charlene, I really appreciate your comment, because the involvement of allies and voices from, uh, from white people, from white Canadians, you are heard more than perhaps I am, and we need all voices to be speaking up right now. Uh, can I do I have a minute to share a story? I um, yeah. I was pulled over by the police a week ago in a very routine thing. I had done nothing wrong. I was not charged. I was not fined, except for Indigenous people. And I bet for all peoples of color in Canada, this is not a routine thing. And I was scared out of my mind. There was no witnesses around. I didn't know whether I'd get fined and all these made-up fines that I sometimes get. And would they pull out the cuffs? Would they, were they going to have be police officers with integrity or would they be or not? And I was scared. And it occurred to me that we can't just be talking about people who've broken the law or have not upheld their professional standards in long-term -term care or any healthcare systems. We actually need systems to start policing themselves. We need every police officer who says it's only bad apples, like as if 
we could say that about airlines. Oh, it's just one bad apple in a pilot. Like we wouldn't say that. We need whole systems to actually call racism a criminal act and have consequences that, in, that include firing people. This is not something you keep an employee for. And as soon as people start to see discipline on a daily basis in their daily lives, because there actually is consequences, we won't make a change. But I also think there's one thing that has also changed significantly this time around, and it is that we are talking about racism from the perspective of Asians who have experienced it, from the perspective of Black Canadians, from the perspective of Indigenous Canadians. And together, I think we have a tremendous voice to change systems. And with allies and with white Canadians, this, this is the change that has occurred this month. So I hope it's enough. If I okay. could just add. If I could add to that, Rose, uh, just because I know that fear uh, that you feel, and this is a fear I think many of us uh, uh, feel across the country. Um, when when you lose uh, confidence after seeing uh, the videos that we saw last night, uh, when the videos that we saw a couple of weeks ago from the United States, you just, when you lose confidence, you lose confidence. And it takes so much more to 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 build that back up. Uh, I know, I understand that fear you must have felt being being pulled over. I, I have to admit, even though I'm a parliamentarian, even though I know my community very well, you know, I have to have. I've I've been thinking over the last little while since seeing that video. Uh, you know, do I need to to have a one button? Uh, you know, turn on my video camera on my on my phone just in case something were to happen to mm -hmm. me. And um, the only thing that has served as a bomb uh, to my spirit of late uh, was that protest and watching the protests over the last few weeks and seeing how many white Canadians are standing up uh, or taking this on who have said, whoa, if this is what uh, people of color uh, and indigenous peoples have been feeling, then I, I want no part of this. That's the thing that has really uh, lifted my spirits and given me an opportunity to hope that things will get better. Okay, a couple of questions here, um, and I'll ask this of, of Greg, Greg Ferguson, Senator Bernard. Can uh, I make a statement, Andrew? On, sure, on, please. Uh, go ahead, yeah. Russell. No, no, I just wanted to respond to the, the uh, issue of coalitions. I think, um, one, it's nice from an optic standpoint to see that multiracial slash multicultural um demonstration but what concerns me is that this is not new it for the past 40 years at least since i've been here we've been demonstrating on the streets since 1976 uh with uh, albert johnson being shot black action defense committee was formed uh after lester donaldson michael wade lawson sophia cook and i have been involved in in i wasn't old enough to to, to witness some but to see it I saw, I saw the Young Street issue took place when um, Rodney King was uh, decision was uh, dropped in, in LA. I was on Young Street walking with people when that issue took place. Um, and I continue to experience what I call YouTube sensations of black oppression turned into entertainment. I continue to experience that black bodies are thrown over the screen in, and turn into entertainment and more so about social justice. So my concern is, is this deep solid 
Sorry, I think we've lost you, Wesley. Wesley, we've we've lost you. If you can call back in, we'll we'll come back to you uh, in a few minutes. Um, I I, I want to go to another question from from the audience, and this is from a senior who's asking, how do we unlearn racism, specifically in the context of people who've grown up in a world with such ingrained racism? Who'd like to try that? With with difficulty, but it it obviously can be done. Um, I, I have to believe that people can learn, at, at, even though you've you've come from whatever background you've come from. I mean, it's just going to take work. Uh, you'll have to challenge yourself for your presumptions uh, uh, constantly. That's okay. I, mean, I would hate to think that somebody uh, at the age of you know 15 or 17 is that you know their their perspective is frozen in amber and it, it you know that nothing can change it uh, you know, when they're 87. No experience changes it and and the fact that that, that this uh, person is asking a question to me uh, it demonstrates that the person can change. Sure. Yeah, I would just add to. Sorry, go ahead. It's, it's to have the conversations. Um, you know, I've had the privilege and opportunity to have conversations uh, with people who tell me what it's like to raise, you know, black sons and what they have to tell their children to do before they go out at night. And I mean, I tell my white son, don't drink and drive and don't speed. But, you know, some of the, those heartfelt conversations where it's not, you know, a protest parade or a march, but to sit down and tell me about your life. I mean, obviously I don't know what it's like uh, to be a, a black woman. So I have to learn and I have to get into that moment and talk to that person and then do my best and use my voice where it's possible. But it, they're, they're hard conversations and we have to be patient with each other because there's, there's decades and histories and generations of this. So let's open up the conversation. Let's lean in and put our hearts in and, and learn from each other. And, you know, white people have got uh, stories to tell too. You know, sometimes when I watch the videos, I'm horrified and I feel guilt because, you know, obviously it was a white man on top of a, a, a black man. So, you know, we I struggle with that. So it's having those open-hearted conversations with each other. It's not easy, but we need to start it and we can have the conversations. Okay, uh, I have a question here about uh, body cameras. So the, the, the Prime Minister said a few days ago that he'd like to see uh, body cameras on RCMP officers the way they are in, in some of the other forces across the country. Uh, some people feel we shouldn't be spending more money on policing. Um, Senator Bernard and uh, Greg Fergus, what are your thoughts about whether we should be going ahead with body cameras for RCMP? Well, I, I think the use of body cameras would be really good, but it can't that can't be the full stop. <laughs> so, you know, what happens with the with the content from those those uh, body cameras? And I think about what would be happening if people weren't recording things on their cell phones. Uh, you know, there's evidence that we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have access to. So, so going beyond uh, having the body cameras, and then what do you do? How do you use that information? And Where's the the accountability around that information that's captured on body cameras it needs to be really, we need to be really clear about the processes for that. Yeah, Greg Fergus. 
I agree with the senator, uh, and I'll go even further. I think yes, we should have body cams, but uh, you know, should we be spending more money? Perhaps you should reallocate the budgets and figure out uh, which you know, uh, you know maybe we need less uh, uh, military or, or tankified jeeps and 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 other things uh, and spend more money on 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 that. Uh, maybe we need less uh, you know militarized type equipment. Uh, and put more investment uh, in, you know, yeah. uh, police uh, officers on the beat and walking the streets and getting to know their communities. I mean, there are choices which we can make. So I don't think there needs to be more money for it. I just think we need to think differently about what we're trying to what we're trying to achieve yeah. when we have our police services. I think uh, what happened what happened in Halifax this past week is a good example, where there was a purchase of a militarized vehicle, mm -hmm. and that purchase was changed and those funds diverted to other, I think, really good choices. So that's that's an example. Yeah. Uh, Wesley Crusoe, are you back with us? Yes, I am back. My, you see, um, see what does? My internet gets dropped. <laughs> Somebody's watching you. I think so. Um, no, so I don't want to sound, as I was saying, I don't want to sound negative, but I do think that if we look at the history of demonstrations in Toronto, and across the country, both Indigenous and Black, uh, we have seen there have been over 40-something reports written about commissions after commission and study. We have been studied over and over and over and over. And so I think we need now to start putting some of these, I mean, AV goes way back with some of this AV. <laughs> we know this stuff in Toronto. Every time somebody gets killed, we are on the streets, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Strike a commission that uh, we got an SIU, we got this, we got that. Yeah. The problem with all of these government responses is there's been no real community accountability. So even if we want this aggregated data, which community agency or agencies will be the overseer of that and be able to account for it on a quarterly basis, a half year or a yearly basis? We are asking for data, but we are not asking for the accountability process or structure on how we are going to collect it and who will own it and have access to it. The disaggregation should be made from very clear upfront that it's public data, and you cannot determine which data goes to the public and which does not go to the public. The minute you have that decision, we are not talking about data disaggregated anymore. Okay, and um, uh, Wesley, if I can just ask you a, a quick thought on on body cameras, should we be spending money on on those or on other things in the RCMP? Well, it's a it's a euphemism for spending more money in policing because. Uh, it doesn't change the very conditions of poverty and abject poverty and homelessness and constructed hopelessness that we live under when we see the police. So, but, but does not, does money, not increase accountability? No, no, I don't see that as, as accountability. I see that as spending more money in the police. We need to take that money and, and put it into social services and improve people's conditions so that their, their proximity and access uh, to police is reduced. Part of the reason we see so many uh, George Floyd crime is a crime of poverty. And most of the crimes that the police encounter where they end up shooting somebody is either a crime of poverty or mental health. We need to take that money and put it in addressing effective structural systemic problems in communities around poverty and mental health. And putting money onto uh, body camps is a waste of money because the people who benefit from that are Amazon, Apple, and Google. <laughs> Amy, <laughs> um, go. You you look like you wanted to jump in on this. You, I think you um, 
Yeah, I can I can understand um, the argument for body camera, and I think that for the police who are working right now, I think they should have body camera. However, I do I am worried that it becomes an excuse of spending more money on police. So if there is a way that we can talk about police budget as a whole, as opposed to just focusing on, oh, do we have body camera or do we not have body camera? Then I think that would be a much better discussion overall, and uh, certainly, um, like you know, sort of um, divesting the police, uh, well, divesting away from policing services into more upfront, uh, or do they call it upstream or downstream? I don't know which one. Um, sort of social services, um, but I think we also need to talk about taxation. Um, I, you know, I'm, you know, I think ultimately, you know, Andrew, you ask the question. Are we willing to pay more? I think we should, like, you know, for those of us who can pay more, we should look at a more progressive taxation system. Every time a government is elected, whether it's liberal or NDP or conservative, they always start by saying, we're not going to raise taxes. Um, I think that we need to talk about how do we meet, make the system more uh, progressive so that it is truly ensuring people who can pay more will pay more then we will have enough money to, whether you want to spend it on body camera or not, but we need to have enough money to increase in, to improve our social safety net um, and you know the healthcare system and all that kind of stuff. The, we're running short of time. This is a huge question, but I just want to ask our two parliamentarians. Um, do you think your colleagues in the House and the Senate are ready for that kind of discussion about deconstructing how we tax and spend and how we reevaluate some of these things. Uh, Senator, you first. Well, I was I was thinking we should have the House speak to that first, but I actually wanted to share something else before. Okay, go ahead. Do we have time? Do we have time? Yeah. I want to come back to that uh, issue of body cameras and whether or not we should be wearing them. And the comments, you know, about let's divert the money and address, you know, some of the things that lead to crime. But one of the things we also need to keep in mind as Rose mentioned, you can be doing nothing at all and be randomly stopped by the police if you're indigenous, if you're racialized. My husband was stopped about a year and a half ago in the middle of an afternoon. And when he said, what am I being stopped for? Well, would you believe he was being stopped because the police noticed he was driving a car that was registered to a woman? That woman was me. <laughs> I was in Ottawa. He was driving my car. <laughs> he wasn't breaking the law. So you don't have to be breaking the law to be stopped by the police. So part of what we also need to be doing is changing the culture of policing. Street checks are still happening, even though they're banned. Racial profiling is still happening, even though it's against human rights legislation. So the culture of policing, the, the, the culture of and the spaces in which racism happens, those are some of the things we really need to uh, be addressing. Okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, go to, I'm, I'm gonna go to closing comments. So um, my, my question would be about deconstruction, but um, feel free to discuss whatever you'd like to. I'll, I'll start with Greg. Yeah, I think we need to have a, a big rethink about uh, how our whole society works and where do we put our resources and what you know what makes a healthy society. Um, if you know if, if anything, this pandemic has forced us to do is to take a little bit of time and to really rethink about this. You know, I, 
you know, aside from the economic hardships that people are facing, what I also hear from a lot of people, uh, those who are fortunate to have jobs uh, during this pandemic, is that how much they, they, they really have been really thinking about why was I doing that rat race before? Uh, and you know, can we live differently and in a way that's more, in, uh, it's gonna sound a little Pollyannish, but how we can live more in harmony with each other, mentally, physically, uh, socially. Uh, those are the things that we, we need to take a look at. Okay, uh, Rose LeMay. Sure, uh, I wanna go back to what Charlene had used a phrase quite, uh, quite earlier when you mentioned it takes a village. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of indigenous knowledge systems that actually backs this up. And I would bet if we go back far enough in all of our cultures, we had words and phrases to reference the roles and, and responsibilities we play to each other and the land. And so I would offer that our way forward is around uh, reconciliation, a TRC calls to action, which said we need to rebuild relationship, perhaps not even rebuild, perhaps we do it for the first time and do it well. We need to figure out how we together live on this land and care for it. And we need to rethink some of these sectors that we've called police, which really we meant mental health, that we called police, but really it should have been a nurse that we called. And we need to rethink them and have the audacity to challenge status quo. And so I'm looking to parliamentarians to play a role, but wow, we're gonna need every, all sectors to lead on this. If, because this is a big shift. And I think, I think we're ready. I think our youth are demanding it. Thank you, Rosa May. Charlene Stewart. Yeah, I mean, I just echo uh, the COVID crisis has really, uh, you know, like Greg said, made us stop and think, hmm, we can live a little differently. Like we don't have to be as chaotic. And then even, you know, through the, my workers, uh, hopefully there is gonna be a real deep dive study into long-term care that includes everything, not just about the virus, but about these, you know, racialized issues as well. And uh, again, and then talk about the uh, recent incidents and what we're talking here about racial injustices. But I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm just so charged up and determined uh, to keep this going. And that's one thing that we have to do. Like every, every one of us as Canadians have got to keep the voices going. And that's what we do. We, we're in a crisis and then we get past it. We don't sometimes improve it. And the weather's turning nice and we're having barbecues. We cannot let this go. And that's my message everywhere is that please, uh, we do have the attention right now. Let this 2020 after the worst pandemic that we've seen in you know 100 years change us as human beings. And let's really look at the you know, equity and inclusion that I know that we absolutely can do. So I'm feeling a bit hopeful. Thank you. Charlene, AV, AV go. Um, so a couple, couple of years ago, I was at the UN uh, when Canada was being reviewed for its compliance with the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And the Canadian delegates uh, tell the UN that racial profiling does not exist in Canada. So I'm hoping that we have, <laughs> on that, I hope we have changed. You know, we hear from the prime minister acknowledging systemic racism. Um, so I think acknowledgement is like the first step towards, you know, uh, redemption or something like that. Um, certainly that uh, that with I do hope and I totally agree with Charlene that we cannot like we cannot afford to give up. Right. So it's like people will live with it. We I mean, what choice do we have? We have to keep fighting. But the reality is that we do need to work together and we do need allies. And for sure, I also need to be um, 
think about more of how to educate people within my community of the experiences of racism of other communities as well. Because I think ultimately, we all need to understand um, the, each other's experiences more in order to move the agenda forward as well. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Professor Critchlow, I'm going to ask, you might have another thought, but I, I have a question for you. Okay. <laughs> After this discussion and in your closing comment, how would you say to the commissioner of the RCMP in, in a couple of sentences, describe to her how systemic racism exists in, in, in the RCMP? How would you define that? Um, I would say to her that it's it's it appears to be neutral on its on its on its surface, uh, but and normative in its everyday. Therefore, it's something she has to investigate to understand better, um, and how it how that racism perpetuates disadvantages for racialized people, for women, etc. And to do so requires a racial justice lens, not an corporate equity lens. That's right. Um, and I think that's not easy for people to do, and they want to do good because often we try to please everyone, and pleasing everyone reproduces inequality. It doesn't substantive inequality. So the question is, how can we get at substantive inequality and take one project at a time and work it to the complete end and not mix it up like an alphabet soup? And, and what are a couple of examples of things you think would either do or would exist in, in a police force like the RCMP? Well, I think um, the disaggregated data that we've been talking about um, could be one of the many things we take and uh, disaggregated based on race, the types of crimes, the, the economic uh, aspect of those crimes, uh, the, the, the uh, occurrences in terms of who was uh, given things like restorative justice or not, and to show her that there has been a pattern of repeat uh, and replete with inequalities towards certain groups. We know that literature will exist if we if we take the data and disaggregate it. Um, and to sit with police officers and ask to account for why these things happen. And to, to uh, that conversation, I think, gets to what we call everyday racism and everyday practice. Of, of, okay, of, and I suppose hiring and hiring and promotion is another area to look at in terms of systemic racism. Well, hiring and promotion can be quite problematic if we don't hire who, who is qualified in terms of folks who are given the support to have a, 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 a racial justice agenda. So when you go in there in that position, you're expected to please everyone. But if you hire me on grounds that I'm an indigenous, I'm, a, I'm an first indigenous RCM, um, chief of, of the RCMP, and I'm going to tell you that my focus for the next five years is to improve relationships with indigenous people, you should be able to let me do that. Because we are saying for the first time now we have someone who wants to address this, and and I think this is reminds me of what Tilgood um, Marshall said. He said, "People are people. Strike them, they will cry. Cut them, they will bleed. Starve them, they will wither away and die. But treat them with respect and decency. Give them access to the levers of power and attend to their aspirations and grievances. They will flourish and grow for a more perfect union. That is what we are striving for, and that's what we need to do." So any RCMP commissioner, police commissioner, who so chooses to address racial inequality, I think is on the path to reforming criminal justice and policing. Thank you. Uh, Senator uh, Bernard, I, I, I'm putting you on the spot again after, those, after one of those very eloquent uh, 
discussions by by Wesley Critchlow. Uh, your your last uh, comments. So my last comment. First, let me pick up on the RCMP. If anyone in the leadership of the RCMP hasn't read Sergeant Craig Smith's book, you better be six by. I mean, sorry, you better be white by six a.m. I think. Uh, if you haven't read that, you should read it. So you've got a, a message within the RCMP that can help you understand systemic racism within the RCMP. I'm so sorry that we didn't get opportunity for more uh, questions from the audience. So, so that's a regret. It's been wonderful to be part of this panel. So my final comments would be to the, to the, to the audience. First of all, to the, to the person who asked, you know, how can you unlearn? And I would say that, and I often say this when I'm teaching, it's an unlearning of privilege to learn about other communities that are different from your own. So there has to be a willingness to unlearn the privilege. And secondly, I would say that it, it can be very overwhelming to think about all of the fundamental changes that have to happen. And so when people become really overwhelmed, sometimes they just do nothing because you don't know where to start. So my suggestion to anyone who's listening, who's tuned into this, who, who tuned into this because you, because you care, I would say lead the change you want to see from where you are. We all have some power in our own spaces. So what are things that we can do where we are? That's where the start, that's where it starts. And if we all take away this idea that change starts with me, and then we can control what things we know we can change, let's start there. That will lead to some fundamental long-term changes, I think. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for this opportunity. But I really wanna thank our six panelists today for taking the time and sharing with all of us uh, your thoughts on this important issue. Be well and take care.